Welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio with your host, Beth Green. This is James Maynard, your co-host. Today's topic, sex, race, and class. Why is prostitution illegal? What's the crime? What would really help? Few of us know prostitution used to be legal, even encouraged in the U.S. In our early days, there was often a lack of women, so you yourself may descend from a railway man or a gold miner who had kids with a prostitute, European, Asian, whoever was available. Prostitution didn't become illegal until the 20th century. Why? Who were these prostitutes? What were the forces that called for criminalization? Did they want females back in the home? Has criminalization helped prostitutes? Has it given them recourse against those who abuse them? Has it protected kids who are being ensnared? Are poorer prostitutes and women of color being disproportionately imprisoned while politicians and businessmen merely use them at will? Sex, race, and class all factor into the criminalization of prostitution and its selective enforcement. And prostitutes have fought back. So stay tuned and learn more about prostitution and who's making money on it. And let's ask what would support those engaged in the trade. And now, here's Beth. Welcome, everybody. I'm so excited uh, to be here. This is a fascinating, multidimensional topic. And we have invited on our show our uh, expert in everything, which is Christine. Uh, Yay. (laughs) <laughs> Yay, I'm glad you didn't say our favorite prostitute. No. And, well, we all are. So yes. we are, you know, what we have become, uh, Interrevolutionary Radio is becoming a research uh, <laughs> institute because <laughs> we are really taking a look at things that people do not generally talk about. And we want to really look at them. Last time we were talking about alcohol and why do we give it a pass when it comes to being a drug. And... Um, Today we're talking about prostitution, and it is a fascinating subject, and I hope that you actually listen, because it has everything to do with you, and you may not even know it. But before we get to that, um, we have some other news. Uh, We're going to have the news of the inner revolution in a minute. Uh, By the way, the inner revolution, for those of you who are new, and we hope that you stick with us if you are new, uh, is that we are talking about a shift of consciousness into real oneness, a sense of oneness, uh, becoming accountable uh, and uh, becoming mutually supportive. So that's kind of like the skeleton framework of what the inner revolution is about. And uh, we're devoted to that. Uh, And one of the things that we do is we question everything. You know, what is the crime in prostitution? I mean, what is, why is it illegal? But in the meantime, whereas, by the way, tobacco, which is the number one preventable, uh, whatever you call it, cause of death in the country is not illegal. I don't get it. I'm not aware of prostitution being the number one cause of death in the country. Not aware of that. Anyway, (laughs) moving right along. (laughs) Before we get to the news, Christine, do you have the news of the inter-revolutionary radio? Like, I'm going to be interviewed somewhere tomorrow, right? You are. Oh, you're springing this on me, huh? Uh, uh, well, do you want me to spring it on you later? Uh, no, I'm just bringing up my notes. Um, but Beth Green is actually has actually been invited by one of our um, affiliates through um, 
through Pacifica, which is a network of radio shows um, that pick up in a revolutionary radio beyond voiceamerica.com. And we've had a number of people pick up the show. Tomorrow, um, KHOI is going to be um, doing their fun drive, you know, like when you see the PBS fun drive. And um, they've invited Beth Green on to talk. And that's because they don't know me. Inspire people to donate lots of money. <laughs> this is these are all public radio uh, stations around the country, so we're so yeah. pleased to be affiliated yes. with them. Yeah, I think it's great. And we can people can hear me, right? People can. Thank you for the cue. Um, <laughs> yeah, they broadcast online. So if you just Google K-H-O-I, um, you'll be able to listen live tomorrow. Um, you don't have to, you know, be in their local area. They stream over the Internet. And uh, that's at 11 Pacific time tomorrow, uh, May 6th. And after that, it will be available via podcast. And we will probably, if we're not ashamed of me, uh, put it on Facebook, too. So if you ever go to our Facebook page, HTTP colon forward slash forward slash facebook.com forward slash the inner rev you will also undoubtedly see that podcast whenever it's available okay thank you for being sprung upon this is uh we have to make sure that you are not a tape recorder christine that's why i have to ask you these questions make sure it's the real you and james would you like to uh charm us with the News of the Inner Revolution. See, News of the Inner Revolution, for those of you who are new, sometimes there are great stories about how people are becoming inter-revolutionary and who are really moving into oneness, accountability, and mutual support. Sometimes the news is just like, it's this is awful stuff that inter-revolutionaries should know. So we try to combine a mix so you don't feel suicidal after the show. Okay, take it away, James. Beth, uh, isn't there some breaking news you might want to share with our listeners about some 2,000 doctors having signed yeah. on for a single-payer uh, health care system? Well, as a matter of fact, I was going to stick it in at the end of the other health care things, but you have got me there in advance. We, I am, like, ecstatic. Ecstatic to hear. I mean, this is what so many of us have been wanting for years. You know, some people call it socialized medicine. Some people call it single payer, whatever. Um, it's Bernie Sanders is talking about it. Thank God people are beginning to talk about it. And these are doctors. They get it. This is stupid. We're spending a lot of money. A lot of people, even with the, quote, Affordable Care Act, can't have access to decent health care. We ourselves, I want to tell you something. We have Medicare and supplemental insurance, and then we have Part D in Medicare, which is the drug plan. And there are so many things that aren't covered, like all the kind of natural things and homeopathic things and all that stuff. I, would, I don't even want to tell you. People around the world could live for a year on what we pay out every month for health care. And we know that this is a real problem. There's a lot of people in this country who have no health care. So I'm excited. And we're putting Christine, who's our producer, on the, the job. We are going to find one of those physicians who's ready to stand up and talk to us about it. Somehow, somewhere, we'll do this. So take it away with more medical news. Yes, indeed. Uh, today we have another group of amazing stories to share with you in case you missed them or need a gentle reminder because you're getting nearly as forgetful as we are. 
as Beth and I are. Two of them are about health and medicine, and three are about the environment. First, two brief but disturbing stories about medicine. We tend to think of the medical establishment as our friend, and it often is. After all, we have increased life expectancy and receive all kinds of help for conditions that we at one time had to endure with no relief. Yeah, like a yeast infection, you know. Yeah. (laughs) On the other hand, here's a story from the Washington Post from May the 3rd, and it's a little shocking. Researchers say that medical errors is now third. Medical I'm sorry, medical errors, is now the third leading cause of death in the United States. Yes, you heard it. The third leading cause of death, medical errors. (laughs) A report published in the BMJ, a medical journal, shows that medical errors in hospitals and other healthcare facilities are incredibly common and may now be the third leading cause of death in the United States, claiming 251,000 lives every year. Martin McCary, a professor of surgery at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, who led the research, said in an interview that the category includes everything from bad doctors to more systemic issues, such as communication breakdowns when patients are handed off from one department to another. Kenneth Sands, who directs healthcare quality at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, said that one of the main barriers is the tremendous diversity and complexity in the way healthcare is delivered. He says, there has just been a higher degree of tolerance for variability in practice than you would see in other industries. Standardization isn't seen at hospitals. That makes it tricky to figure out where errors are occurring and how to fix them. The government should work with institutions to try to find ways to improve on this situation. Okay, so if you have recovered from that shock, here's another one. Can I comment on that before you Uh, move on? Oh, yes, go right ahead. Um, I I have a client, actually, and basically what they're doing is the equivalent of putting um, RFID uh, tags on patients. Do you guys know what RFID is? No idea. It's like a little chip where you can track things. So, you know, how do they know, for instance... um, uh, you know, when you're shipping things across country and you're shipping your goods to a store in the opposite side of the country and you need to know where it is. Well, it can have a little chip on it that, that calls up to a satellite that then calls home and it says, oh, it's in New Mexico right now. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's whatever, 40 degrees and it's refrigerated properly, right? Yeah. They're putting them on people kind um, so that so they don't get the wrong treatment or the wrong <laughs> Jesus. Medicine. They don't ta- take out the wrong person's gallbladder. Um, I know. And when I heard about this like technology, I thought, that sounds very cold and impersonal. But um, I just wanted to say, well, I get it. That's like it's yeah. actually happening, that those yeah. mistakes are happening. Yeah. Now that you hear these frightening, appalling statistics, you realize something has to be done. Yeah. Thanks for that. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay then. Yeah, so here's another one. I think we all knew that the overprescription of antibiotics is a problem, but the problem is bigger than many of us realize. This story is from the Huffington Post, dated May the 3rd. And it says that a major study has found that one in three antibiotics prescribed in the U.S. is unnecessary. Yikes, one in three? Health officials have been warning for decades about the overuse of antibiotics and its contribution to the development of drug-resistant bacteria. But now we have more specific information. According to research from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the the Pew Charitable Trust, 
Nearly a third of antibiotics prescribed in doctor's offices, emergency rooms, and hospital-based clinics in the U.S. are not needed. The overuse of antibiotics has led to the frightening rise of drug-resistant superbugs in recent years. The CDC has warned that nightmare bacteria are increasingly resistant to even the strongest antibiotics. Most of the 47 million unnecessary prescriptions given out each year are for conditions that don't respond to antibiotics, such as colds, sore throats, bronchitis, flu, and other viral illnesses. Doctors often wind up prescribing antibiotics because of pressure from parents or, or patients. The good news is that even relatively simple steps, such as displaying a poster in patient waiting rooms, can cut down on antibiotic prescribing. And this is what the editorial said last year. Uh, recently. Last year, the White House announced an aggressive plan to combat antibiotic-resistant bacteria, which already cause an estimated 2 million illnesses and 23,000 deaths every year just in the U.S. The administration set a target of reducing inappropriate antibiotic use in outpatient settings by half by 2020. Beth? Yeah, you know what I think is very interesting about this article? is that so much of this is caused by our consciousness. You know, in the inner revolution, we say, okay, there's a lot of finger pointing. There are bad guys who are doing bad things or normal human beings who are, find themselves doing bad things because of circumstances or their conditioning or whatever. But here's a, something which we are creating or we are co-creating. Because if the, pa- the patients say, no, I have to have a medicine, I have to have it now, and even if it doesn't do any good and they're pushing it or the parents are pushing it, I mean, this is really being co-created by us. So I think this is a very important inner revolutionary story because we need an inner revolution in the way that we see medicine as not the fix-all of everything, not to say that it doesn't have some really good aspects and uh, we uh, we want to talk about that. I mean, that's another aspect of medicine that we hope to be covering on on future shows about uh, some of the misinformation that is given out by the medical professions, how the bad, the negative sides of drugs, but as well as the positive sides, but also you know about our attitudes towards medicine. And uh, I'll tell you one positive that I've noticed is that when I was growing up, because I was born in 1945, so. You know, I was going to doctors in the late 40s and early 50s. I mean, doctors were, not only were they God, but they were expected to be God. I mean, you couldn't say, a doctor never said, well, gee, let me check on that, or uh, let me think about that, or I'm not sure, or here's some options. It was like, do this and go home. Uh, So that was really bad because we, you know, we took no responsibility for our care. But then on the other hand, we don't want to take, we don't want to be having power that we really don't know anything about and we're demanding stuff that that we shouldn't. It's, It's like all that stuff about medicine that's being advertised that people then go in and ask for it and there's not the right medication and doctors who are then being bribed by the pharmaceutical companies. So this is going to make a very interesting story. But in the meantime, I want you to be thinking about how much our own consciousness is driving this. Yes. And now we have three brief stories on the environment, the good, the bad, and the fighting back for accountability. The good story is about the fashion industry. Many of you will remember the fascinating interview we had with Andrew Morgan, the director of The True Cost, showing the human and environmental impact of the fashion industry, especially fast fashion. Well, here's a very cool story, and Beth is still laughing because she says this is the first article on fashion that she has ever read. 
<laughs> it's from Upworthy, and it's dated May the 3rd. It describes a number of ways that the fashion industry is beginning to take accountability for its impact on the environment. Emma Watson, a fashion designer, has made a dress from fabric woven from recycled plastic bottles. <laughs> Don't you love that? <laughs> Which is amazing since plastic is one of the biggest pollutants on the planet. In addition, the cotton used in the design is organic, not the conventional kind that uses chemicals to grow and which damages the earth and puts workers' health at stake. Even the zippers were crafted from recycled materials. Ms. Watson wrote on Facebook, I am proud to say it is truly sustainable and represents a connection between myself and all the people in the supply chain who played a role in creating it. Another person calling the fashion industry to accountability is Glynis Sweeney, who wrote for Alternet last August. And she said, we don't often think of the shirts on our backs, but the overall impact the apparel industry has on our planet is quite grim. We over-rely on cotton, which is a thirsty crop that needs more than its fair share of water to grow. And we are over-dependent on the process of shipping materials cheaply from around the world. And this has increases the carbon footprints. She says yeah, that who ever thinks about that? You buy stuff that's coming from India or Bangladesh. It has to get shipped somehow. That's spewing, you know, fumes into the environment. Never think about it. Go ahead, James. Yeah. And so she says, big fashion really hasn't prioritized environmentalism, like, at all, actually. (laughs) Uh, Livia Firth, who co-founded the Green Carpet Challenge, states, fast fashion, which is the consuming and tossing clothes at an appalling rate, will slowly die as we will start realizing that they have taken us for a ride for too many years, addicting us to buying too fast and too cheaply. Perhaps we can be inspired to be a little bit more critical of our own closets. We sure hope so. So now, from the good to the bad. The information comes from an article written by Bill McKibben, environmental activist and head of 350.org, and it was published on BillMoyers.com and dated March the 24th. The grim title is... Global Warnings Terrifying New Chemistry. Here's some of what Bill is saying. Our leaders thought fracking would save our climate. They were wrong. The nation as a whole is leaking methane in massive quantities. Between 2002 and 2014, the data showed that U.S. methane emissions increased by more than 30%, accounting for 30 to 60% of an enormous spike in methane in the planet's atmosphere. To the extent our leaders have cared about climate change, they fixated on CO2. Partly as a result, coal-fired power plants have begun to close across the country. They've been replaced mostly with ones that burn natural gas, which is primarily composed of methane. This unburned methane is much more efficient at trapping heat than carbon dioxide. The methane story is utterly at odds with what we've been telling ourselves. It undercuts the promises we made at the climate talks in Paris. It's a disaster, and one that seems set to spread. Natural gas wildcatters have been rapidly expanding fracking in the last decade. Fracking involves exploding the subsurface geology so that gas can leak out through newly opened pores. Two Cornell scientists... Howarth and Ingrafia have produced a series of papers claiming that even if a small percentage of the methane leaked, maybe as little as 3%, then fracked gas would do more climate change than coal. And their preliminary data show that leak rates could be at least that high, that some are between 3.6 and 7.9% of methane gas from shale drilling operations actually escapes 
into the atmosphere. This information is very sobering. And speaking of methane, we'd like to remind our listeners of an interview we did a few months ago with Keegan Kuhn, co-director of Cowspiracy. He linked methane production with animal husbandry, too. So this means we're all going to have to become more aware of all the sources of destruction to our environment. As Bill McKibben says in his article, the global warming fight can't just be about carbon dioxide any longer. And our final climate story is kind of cool. By the way, I just found that extremely upsetting. (laughs) So I just want to say that. Yes. Okay. Oh, yes. I mean, every time I read that article, because I have to keep reading things, you know, as we're putting them into our news, it's like, I don't even want to hear that. Could we skip that article? Just go on to the next one. Yeah, like be an ostrich with the head buried in the sand. Yeah, that's somehow, me. Somehow the problem will go away, right? Right, right. <laughs> and our, our final climate story is about the success some have had in demanding that corporations finally take accountability about their destructiveness. This story ran on earthjustice.org. April 28, 2016. It's called Ending Corporate Hit and Runs, and we think that's a great title. For decades, communities across the nation have been exposed to toxic waste due to irresponsible industrial management of toxic chemicals. The so-called Superfund Law of 1980 was enacted to ensure there would be money in place to clean up these industrial messes. But funding often ran dry, leaving the burden of cleanup on the shoulders of taxpayers. A recent victory by Earth Justice on behalf of several conservation groups will force the EPA to create tough new rules that require companies to post financial assurances to show that they have the cash to clean up their messes after they're done operating. Said Justin Hayes, one of the attorneys, these rules ensure that people act responsibly, that industries make good on their commitments to clean up their messes, and that they try to avoid making them in the first place. In the event that companies don't live up to their part of the bargain, at least the funding is available so that we can make sure that environmental contamination is removed and communities are protected. Beth? Well, I've just had the very odd uh, reaction to the the environmental news. I was able to listen to the... uh the fashion thing, which I thought was hysterically funny and very cool. And the other two I just didn't even want to listen to. Did How many of you hung up on us? Did anybody else, uh, Christine, <laughs> did you want to go away? Yeah, I did. And uh, if they hung up on us, they probably aren't going to tell us. Um, <laughs> yeah. Did you have trouble listening? Yeah. Yeah, I did too. And that's really weird because I read those things. And I, and I, in fact, I think I was the one who, who put them onto the, you know, sent them to James. It's like, oh, yeah. these are important stories. Well, I really don't know. So if you fell asleep during that, you are not alone. So I don't know why that is. It's maybe it's just that, you know, it just seems so difficult sometimes. Yeah. You know? It's like, oh, we try this and we think that's going to work and then we try. You know, it's really no different from medicine. It's no different from anything. We're always trying to fix our problems. And so often, every when we try to fix it, we've created a bigger problem. Yep. So Hillary Clinton supporters who thought that, you know, her position, which is fracking is okay until we get really sustainable. Well, it ain't. It yeah. just ain't. It's just not okay. And what we need is... Such a dramatic shift in our consciousness about our relationship to the world and our relationship to consumption and our, uh, you know, our relationship to the planet. We need a tremendous inner revolution about that. And, uh, you know, even if we had it, uh, we don't have all the answers. So I don't know if that touches on it. But if you manage to stick with us, 
maybe you heard what I just said. Anyway, moving from that to the issue of prostitution. Ugh! (laughs) (laughs) I mean, human insanity run amok. I still, Mm -hmm. I mean, the question that we're asking is, why exactly is prostitution illegal? Now, I want to say that... um, in Christine has done most of the research, and so she, we're going to be picking her brain, which has been picking other people's brains. Uh, I have some experience with it. And also there's something interesting, which is that uh, nationally, it's not, it's not a federal. It's not a federal crime. It's a state and local crime. Uh, but it used to, when they first started to crack down on prostitution, they would be cracking down on vagrancy, loitering, you know, people hanging out in the street. Mm-hmm. But they didn't actually make prostitution itself illegal, and then it became illegal. I don't mm-hmm. understand why. I mean, you talk about, you know, people are talking about undue interference of the federal government, you know, the morality police. But, you know, it's all these Christian moralists, <laughs> you know, who are telling you what you should do with your own sex organs. Now, I am not saying that I think prostitution is a good thing. I don't think it's a particularly good thing. I see a lot of problems, and I, and there's sex slavery, and there's a lot of a lot of issues involved in that. But it certainly is something that people have a choice about. And if people had more options, they probably wouldn't do it as often. And I want to say one other thing before we start actually getting into the topic: prostitutes are people, men, women, trans. They're yep. people. They're like, they could be your neighbor, you know? Yep. That's because I worked with prostitutes in the 70s um, when I was in the women's movement and the Wages for Housework campaign. And we were talking about that people c- hate prostitutes because prostitutes are asking for money for stuff that women are supposed to give away for free, <laughs> that it's an affront to ask for wages for sex when that's supposed to be out of love. But how many of us, I'm going to start with a couple of admissions. I used to go to bars and let men buy me drinks, and then I felt obliged to go home and sleep with them. And I had a couple of boyfriends who would take me to restaurants, and when I was really, really poor, and I would take the rest, you know, I would take home the food and divide it up so I'd have several days to eat. In fact, oh one my of gosh. my boyfriends said that he, he realized, he said, you know, why don't we just stop this nonsense and I'll just go to the supermarket and let's get you some groceries for the week <laughs> instead of taking you out to dinner. Now, I didn't always have sex with them. Sometimes it was the charm of my personality and sometimes I did and I felt so shitty about myself uh, that I wasn't really taking care of myself. That was very long time ago. But, you know, it happened to me. And then I'm going to tell you one more funny story about my career as a prostitute. I uh, was in school as a, uh, you know, college student. And uh, again, I was so poor and so struggling to make ends meet. Uh, that was a whole long story about why I got into that really bad situation uh, that really wasn't in any way my fault. And so I went to the school and I was looking for a job. And the school had like a bulletin board for people looking for college students. So I found this guy who was, you know, he said he was, he owned a factory. He was a Russian guy. And he said he wanted to interview me. So he took me out to lunch, which was an interesting interview. But I didn't care at the time. I was hungry. And, uh, 
And it turned out that he really didn't want uh, me to work for him in his office. That um, he found me so intelligent and charming, and I knew so much about Russian literature, which he was, you know, he was Russian. And uh, he was going to pay me a monthly stipend uh, to be basically his girlfriend, mostly for conversation, but not uh, only for conversation. Well, I didn't know what to do at that point. I was like desperate. And um, so as I, I was really, I was going to do it. And then one day uh, I was so stupid that I turned on my oven and the stove, the oven exploded in my face because I didn't really know how to use a propane oven at the time. And my <laughs> hair was singed and my eyebrows were singed and my face was burnt. So I... <laughs> <laughs> you are like a sitcom. Isn't that hysterical? Yeah. So I said, no. I love Lucy. I, 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 yes, I love Lucy. I couldn't even do it, you know, but I also want other people to have some other sense of, so I'm saying it could be anybody, you know what I mean? Like we have this idea that prostitutes well, are What's the connection between the, the oven and the, you saying no to the guy? Well, my face was burned. My hair was burnt. My oh, eyes got burnt. it. You lost your... <laughs> I lost your... my allure. Aside <laughs> my vast knowledge of Russian literature, I know he wanted more than that. So I took that... <laughs> from God and that was kind of the end of it but I I know how many women and not probably not just women also men uh, go to bars pick up men and are looking for something you know money food alcohol whatever that is so so darn common isn't it and then um, there are so many other ways. I mean, then there's the women who, you know, just they have kids, they can't make enough money in the jobs that are available to them. So uh, it starts this way, it starts that way. And the other thing I want to say about prostitution is how many of us are not prostitutes, and you're going to hate this, but how many of us have done stuff that we thought was bad, reprehensible, or that we pretended that we liked, and we felt like prostitutes because we were giving away our bodies in the typing pool, in the factories, whatever, in order to make a buck. So, and yep. not to speak of the other form of prostitution, which is all these women that I went to this fancy girls' college with who were being primed by their parents to marry the rich man. I mean, if that isn't high-class prostitution, I don't know what is. So, but it's not illegal. But it's not illegal. It's not even frowned upon. You're, it's like, ooh, you're, you're, it's, this is a good catch. You made a good catch. Right? Yeah. So, you know, what's our noses doing uh, stuck in the air and up our asses? That's what I want to know about prostitutes. Because we like to believe that we're not that. But we'll get into that. Yes. Yes. So. I have four answers to your questions of why is prostitution illegal. Go ahead. Um, but do you want to start out with some of the background on how it came to be illegal? Uh, no, let's start a little bit with, with a little bit about why prostitution is illegal, and then we'll get into that. Because, I mean, at least people know now. Okay. It okay. wasn't well, always that way. Did, you, did anybody notice that it wasn't, it's not one of the Ten Commandments? <laughs> By the way, there is national legislation that stops interstate prostitution transport. There, in fact, there were there were laws which which stopped prostitutes from crossing state lines for any reason. Can you believe that? So that's yeah. the national, but the prostitution itself has been local. Yeah. Okay, take it away, Christine. 
Okay, so through all the research I did, which was a lot of reading online in a book written by a former prostitute, and I actually had a conversation with someone who was a prostitute for, I think, 11 years, and to get a little insight there as well. Um, but here's what I've come to. There are four reasons that prostitution illegal is illegal, and one is that it challenges the balance of power. Yes. And what I mean by that is women are supposed to be under the power of men, especially financially. Um, and what's happening is housewives or wives or whatever, you know, girlfriends provide sex for free and prostitutes ask to get paid for it. So I think uh, there's like this undercurrent of fury basically at that. And it, um, it, it allows women a certain level of independence and autonomy. Um, so that's one, it's a big one. Um, another is that it challenges the hierarchical social order. Um, there's, you know, there's a thing that, um, I don't know, we all, you know, we all want to feel that we're above somebody, right? Um, you know, and, um, so let's keep, you know, a certain class of people and let's make it prostitutes, um, in, and, and call of their activity illegal. And that way we've kind of codified that they are at the bottom of the social structure, just like any other criminal would be. Um, and I think it's, uh, yeah, like I may be a hopelessly addicted Percocet alcoholic addict who's showing my boobs to get clients in the insurance industry, but I'm exactly. not a prostitute, right? Exactly. Ex- and getting tons of plastic surgery, et cetera. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I think, again, this is like control of women. Um, but, um, yeah, it's like, well, you know, it's them. But, but if you think about it, like you said, in the Ten Commandments, um, it's not like murder, you know, to, um, ask for money for sex. It's like, you know, it's, it's different. Um, but people have made a case for it obviously really strongly and well, because we don't even question it, which is what I started to like, be like, oh my gosh, why don't we question this when I, when I did the research? Um, so this goes into my next thing, um, is we want to distinguish and classify prostitution as something that we are not, Right. So let's all like, like you just said, we could totally like pimp ourselves out to clients, right? Um, in terms of um, let's get the next deal, let's um, you know get the sale, let's get the job, let's get the husband, let's get the whatever, and it's a form of um, exchange, right? Like you're giving something of yourself in exchange for whether it's that security, whether it's the bonus, whatever, um, and that's a form of prostitution. Um, but we want to think, well, we're not that. I, I'm not a prostitute. You know, prostitutes are like, they sell sex for money and they are at the bottom of the social order and let's, you know, make it illegal. And it's like far, far away from anything that we are. It's like a way of separating from that. Yeah. yeah. And then the fourth was that people make money off of it being illegal. Now, I don't think this is like the number one driving factor of why it's illegal. I think it's more about the having control over women and keeping a certain social order in place. Um, But police are incentivized, you know, to capture a number of prostitutes. Um, There are things called John's schools. So these are customers of prostitutes who... um, 
you know, who are caught by police and they're sent to be rehabilitated. Um, and so those schools have instructors and there's a, there's like a whole industry of people. I didn't um, even know that about that. Yeah, who like fight prostitution, who rehab prostitution, et cetera. It's so there identity. is a, yeah, and exactly. There's an identity, and there's an industry, and there is uh, there's money there, um, uh, being made off of the. But there's uh, tons of money that's being made off prostitution. Yes, that's true too. Tons yes. of money. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that? I, um, you know, so you said something a minute ago that sent me like wild, and I had this. Amazing realization. Oh, here it is. <laughs> I was going to say it was great, but I couldn't think of it. So then I wouldn't have to prove that it really was a great realization. But now that I remember it, you may say that was it. You know, women are selling our bodies, you know, when we prostitute. And frankly, you know, I think it's kind of awful to ever have sex with anybody. I mean, to me, sexuality is spiritual. It's, it's a, a reflection of a spiritual connection, an intimacy with another human being. And, um, but I know that there's another part of sexuality, which is just the physical part, that people, we've not been able as a culture, as a society, as a world, to really integrate those aspects of ourselves, you know, that spiritual intimate part and that physical part. So, you know, a lot of people masturbate or a lot of men go to prostitutes, sometimes women also. Um, And, you know, we really don't know how to handle our sexuality. And, of course, that is the issue under all of the issues, under all of the issues, right, is the that we don't feel our sexuality as sacred. And we've commercialized everything. But that isn't only true of prostitution. And it just occurred to me that when women sell our intimate uh, parts, the utilization of our parts, and not, of course, we haven't sold them, um, we allow ourselves to be used in that way. But men allow themselves to be used equally in sports, mm-hmm. in war, and so on. They're taking pe- their bodies, mm-hmm. right? And something that is considered valuable in our society is the brawn of men mm-hmm. and we are they are using them in exchange for money i yep. mean what the hell is football other than that yeah and um and it, not just football i love to pick on football because it's such a you know a, such an obvious uh, example uh, but you know men make their their name in war uh, they na- make their names in sports, and they are selling the utilization of their bodies. And in the end, they don't get venereal disease. They get uh, concussions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they get severe cognitive impairment. They get arthritis and all of that. And this is a equal, and yet nobody says anything about it in that way. They don't say these men are prostituting themselves. So yep. you can see that what Christine has been talking about is that this is really about women. Mm-hmm. Or people, homosexuals or trans, who are in the woman role, right? And mm-hmm. it's an attack on women uh, because whether you think that's a good thing or a bad thing, football is not illegal. <laughs> yeah. And so the fact is that it is true. Well, I was When I was in the Wages for Housework movement, I worked, as I said, I worked a lot with prostitutes. And I had to think about this. At that time, how much 
the pressure there has been to force women into the home. And I think you have some fascinating information there about the history of prostitution, that we assume that prostitution is automatically by nature illegal because that's what we grew up with. But far from it. Uh, yeah. You know, it's, it's just, it's really not a reality. But there has been so much social control of women. Uh, so many women became prostitutes because they had no other access to uh, making money, especially in the societies, uh, you know, the 19th century. You, know, you always read these books or you, you've seen masterpiece theater or something. And mm-hmm. some poor, you know, maid gets knocked up and she's thrown out in the street and she has nothing to do but be a prostitute because she had no other way to support herself. And so women who have any kind of independence or who are demanding autonomy are always smashed. That isn't the only thing about prostitution, but it, it's an important part. So now I think it would be great. Oh, my God, the time is passing so I fast. Ah. We've got a lot. <laughs> we had so much news, too, today. So, Christine, so why don't you give us a little bit about that background so people can have a, some perspective on this. About when it became criminalized and yes, what it's and like in other countries, yeah, because we just um, we just assume, and like Beth said, they may have um, arrested women earlier in the early, you know a few couple centuries ago, but it was for like vagrancy or or you know making too much noise or something. But I there's this there's this like little song that I love, and the the four lines go. This is about um, the gold rush in San Francisco. The miners came in 49, the whores in 51, and when they got together, they produced the native son. <laughs> and what they're talking about is like, you know, all these men went out to San Francisco, and um, at the time, there were only like 300 women who called San Francisco home. And so basically women from all around the world um, came in and became prostitutes. It was like a viable way of, of living, and they're just were enough women at the time. Um, but even earlier, I love this story too. In 1721, so that's before our nation became a nation, in the what was then the colony of Louisiana, um, there were 700, just 700 men who'd settled there. And that, um, that does not include um, men who were in slavery. Um, but um, the French government, because it was, you know, French owned, sent 80 women to the colony by ship in the hopes that, you know, they would marry Louisiana's men and, um, you know, form families and then colonize. Um, but basically what happened was these women had been serving time for prostitution charges in French prisons. And when they got to the colony, they were like, why should I marry these guys? And they just decided to remain prostitutes, basically. Um, because for them, they had their independence. They had you know, their finan- you know, control over their finances, and they weren't under the thumb of men. Um, but I'll fast forward ahead. Um, to to when it was criminalized is around the turn of the 20th century and basically there were it was there were social movements happening that really drove the the this urge to have it criminalized uh, basically people saying you know it's a moral issue and what they were 
they were seeing is a lot of immigrants and working class um, people coming into the nation. And they um, there are people that felt like they had a certain set of values. And there was this like middle class who were saying that, no, they need to adopt our values of chastity, of monogamy, hard work and propriety, because I'm sure that's what everyone in the middle class was like. Oh, sure. Um, <laughs> and so they were like, you know, we need to just fight this moral war of, and, and make our values strong. And so they started saying, you know, no to prostitution. Um, but what this really interesting um, professor who wrote in this law journal for Berkeley was said is that it was really to keep women in the private sphere of home and family. So I'm sure this was a time when uh, the women's uh, movement, you know, for the right to vote, et cetera, was yeah. starting to bubble up. And she said it was to prevent women from supporting themselves independently of men and to encourage them to marry. Right. <laughs> and re- remember, it wasn't always legal for women even to keep their own money when they were married. You know, we had a fight for the right to keep our own money in marriage. Yeah. Yep. You know, there's Um, another aspect of this that I'd like you to touch upon, uh, Christine, which is the whole issue of uh, typically people think of prostitutes as streetwalkers. And that is overwhelmingly not the case. But there is an issue of race involved in that. uh, Yeah, those are the women that are or uh, transgender people who... Uh, who pay the price for prostitution. Um, but the Urban Institute, which is a public policy think tank, they did a report to kind of, um, oh, wait, no, no, that's not the one I want. It's, uh, there was a, another study on race and prostitution. And really only 10 to 20% of prostitutes solicit on the street. And the remaining 80 to 90 work in, they're like in brothels or massage parlors, escort services, et cetera. Um, but the ones who are on the street are mostly women um, who are poor and women uh, who are women of color. And they really disproportionately suffer um, police harassment, arrest. Um, they, let's see, they... Um, they, they account for um, 90% of those arrested for prostitution are women working on the street. So if you think about it, they're 10 to 20% of all the prostitutes, but they're 90% of those who are arrested. Um, and then um, they're basically, I could give you all the stats, but they're just totally overrepresented in terms of the, the, the prostitutes that are arrested and put in prison. So sex, race, class. You know, uh, the yeah. women who find the wealthy husbands, you know, I tell you, in so many societies, I've seen this, not just in our own, that uh, getting married was a way that women could start uh, having affairs. <laughs> not only men, but women would have affairs, too. Not in all societies. There was something very, very interesting about that, but that gave them the freedom to actually do that. Uh, so there are so many skewed things that happen around our sexuality. Um, and just, can I say more about yeah, the street yeah. prostitute thing? Yeah. It's really interesting because there are all these movements to, I mean, there are ways for prostitutes to get clients without having to be on the street, right? Yeah. Uh, it's called the internet. Um, but all these like anti-prostitution movements are like, no, shut it down. Don't publish the, these ads. But what prostitutes are saying is that it gives them more control over negotiating with their client and 
um, when and choosing that person when it's done online. So it's actually giving them more safety. It's giving them more power in terms of, you know, not being at the whim of whoever's just walking down the street and whatever else could be happening on that street. Um, but people are working to shut it down. And so that's what's making, you know, people having to be on the street. You know, th- this is so fascinating because how many men do you know who have never been to a prostitute? <laughs> you know, there's so many men yeah. have used prostitution. And yeah. yet we think, when we think about prostitution, we're basically thinking about women. Uh, women are, being the, are the ones who are put in jail. And uh, women are the ones who are being abused by the police, by the pimps, who are not getting any protection from what we are doing. Which is why, as I said before, we have a whole issue. We, you know, we're so screwed up about sexuality. It's unbelievable. And we do have to get to all of that. So what we're talking about, and I'd like us to focus now a little bit on legalization versus decriminalization. Mm-hmm. Again, you don't have to say prostitution is a great thing. For some women, they think it's a, it gives them power. Some women have emotional issues that they are doing that. Some women are just, it's a way to make money. Um, for some women, they don't know, they don't have any other way. Um, but, you know, it's happening, it's going to happen. We're not taking it away by mm-hmm. making it illegal. We're just making it extremely dangerous and awful for some people. And we've also supported organized crime, of course, and disorganized crime because prostitution uh, when you're when it's not legal, women need pimps and so on, who are also very abusive. Women have no way of protecting themselves when they've been raped, and there's a lot of rape among uh, prostitutes and so on. So, what kind of solutions, you know, are there? A decriminalization and legalization, mm-hmm. and um, you know, plus somehow having an inner revolution, so we begin to shift and people have more opportunities and different opportunities and more self-esteem, and so on, and can fe- feel that they have independence in other ways, and that we start to deal with our sexuality differently. But let's talk a little bit about those options, Christine. Yeah, and I want to say that people could be like, well, who cares if it's illegal, right? Like, what? Who does that hurt? Um, and we just we talked about a little bit of it, but um, in, in terms of the you know the internet and making that less available, um, but also, um, gosh, I just forgot what I was going to say. So I'll get back to that. Let me talk about um, prostitution around the world first of all, so just in case you think that every it's illegal everywhere. I mean, I, everybody knows, like, okay, in Amsterdam it's not, but of um, looking at a hundred countries reviewed. Prostitution is legal in 49%, has limited legality in 12%, and is illegal in 39%. So there are way more countries in which it's legal or has limited legality than those in which it's illegal. Now, Beth was talking about the difference between legalizing and decriminalizing, and it's an important distinction. Um, Decriminalizing refers to removing all criminal prohibitions and penalties on sex work. So that's including laws targeting the clients or called like the Johns. Um, when you remove the, the, the prosecution of sex work, um, it's, um, it's seen as going more hand in hand with protecting the human rights of the sex worker. So what's happening now is that, you know, you, they're submitted to um, um, involuntary, you know, STD tests or whatever, like they, they have no rights, basically. 
And the reason that this is important, because if you, um, if you make it legal, it actually helps out the traffickers a little bit. But if you just decriminalize it, you, um, you take off some of these penalties on the sex workers, but you're still able to go after and prosecute the sex traffickers. So let me tell you um, really quick. Um, the UN Secretary General in the 2000s came forward and called for the end of criminalization of sex work as did the Human Rights Watch, as did the World Health Organization um, and many other organizations. And um, there are some places that are way more, I guess you would call progressive, where it's fully legal. Um, but there are places even uh, that uh, countries like Germany, Greece, and Denmark who regulate or even own brothels. Um, prostitutes pay taxes, have social services, pensions even. And Denmark actually even pays prostitutes who offer services for disabled patrons. Um, um, but what they're saying with um, decriminalization is that it does not increase the number of people involved in the work. It just reduces risk and danger for the people involved. It's more supportive of human rights and dignity um, of, of the people involved as well. I know I we just have a couple minutes, fantastic. but I just, yeah. No, I think this is just fantastic information. Let us get our head straight. What are the problems with prostitution, venereal diseases, abuse of the women, sex trafficking, ensnaring uh, you know, youth and throwing them on the street? These problems are not increased by decriminalization, and that's, that's important. In fact, we can start to go after that and to help the women. And, and if we could possibly and envision creating a world where people could, would have more choice, then we would see what would happen with prostitution. Yes, Christine? They wouldn't be so much at the whim of a, of a pimp because if you look at it, you know, what does a pimp do? It prote he protects you. Yeah. But if you're booking your clients online, you're not afraid of the police. You know you can call the police if you're, you know, if something happens, right? Yes. You don't need a pimp. And the woman that I talked to who prostituted for 11 years, she said that was the worst were the pimps. Right. Um, you know, if you didn't make a certain amount of money, they beat you. Um, you know, they took all the money, um, it was, it's just, it, it's, again, it's like, okay, the men somehow get the power, Isn't that even in this trade. Yeah. Oh my God. My, well, uh, James, can you tell us what we're doing last week and then we'll wrap this up? Oh, <laughs> uh, how about, how about next week? Okay. Uh, did I say next week? You last said la week. Last week. Oh, <laughs> Forget it. Backward into the future. Here right. we go. The hidden epidemic, suicide, is killing us faster than drugs. An interview with blogger Steve Austin. Suicide is not rare. It's killing our kids faster than drugs. It's the tenth leading cause of death in the U.S., the third after accidents and homicides for youths 15 to 24, and the fourth among adults 18 to 65. Men succeed in killing themselves more often than women. Women try more frequently. And it's not only a U.S. problem. Who identified suicide as the third leading cause of death among people 18 to 44 in the world? I'm sorry, WHO, not WHO. WHO, the World Health Organization. Meet Steve Austin, a man who tried to kill himself, failed, and came back to become a happier guy. A former youth pastor, pastor masquerading as the perfect husband and dad, Steve had been sexually abused and struggled with a culture of stuffed feelings. He is now a blogger, sharing in an open and honest way. Why did he attempt suicide? How did he feel when he failed? What has worked for him and his family? What can he share with you or a loved one? We all know someone 
who is mentally ill, suicidal, depressed, or anxious. It might even be you. Tune in for a deeper look into and out of the pit. And now for a final word. Thank you, James. Um, I'm looking forward to uh, talking to Steve next week. I really want to thank Christine for all the hard work she did in pulling all this information together. And I'm asking you, if you feel kind of confused and upset by this show, right on. (laughs) We have to really start thinking so much deeper about the things that we do in society, the, 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 the way things operate and the things that we take as being normal that aren't. We need to start healing our sexuality. We have to start dealing with our sex addiction. We need to be thinking about offering everybody opportunities to, uh, to realize themselves without hurting themselves, without giving away parts of themselves. It's time that we stopped criminalizing prostitution and um, looking down upon those people who are engaged in it. God bless. Thank you for being with us. See you next week. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Inner Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us.